So we're talking about heaven. And uh, as I got into this, to be honest, I figured that there's uh, actually a lot more material on this than I think I can possibly deal with uh, in the time we've got this morning. So it's probably going to be one of those messages where at some point we're just going to have to stop and uh, we'll circle back to this topic at some other point because there's a lot in this. You know, you sort of think, oh, you know, heaven, we can cover that in a little while. But there's a lot of issues in there. And the more you get into it, there's a lot more issues that come out because people have got so many questions about it. And there were so many questions in this question series, so many that came in on heaven that we thought we'd cobble them all together and create one morning just on heaven. Obviously, it's something that you're all very interested in. Um, I don't know whether that's like a near-death experience or what it is. You've got a death wish, but we want to know about heaven. So, And it is a, f- a fascinating topic that a lot of people are intrigued by. What's it going to be like and, and how does it all work? So what we'll do is this. We'll, we'll start, we're trying to do this chronologically, right? So we'll start with looking at what happens to a person at the moment they die. Right, and we'll work through from there right through to you know, what happens, Jesus' return and the final judgment and, and all of those different things. In reality, this could be, this could be a six-week series. Okay? There's a lot of stuff in here, but we're just, we're just going to see how we go. All right, sound good? You happy with that? Okay, good. So here's the first question then that uh, some of you were interested in. What happens when a person passes away? Because uh, there's a lot of different ideas. You know, is there a period of waiting? Uh, do we go straight to some other realm? Do we go somewhere first and then go to heaven? Or how, how does it all work? Okay. So here is the deal. At the moment a person dies. Now, I've changed my mind on this, to be honest with you. It's an interesting thing. But uh, I used to believe, this is probably the most popular view, I used to believe that when a person died, the body goes into the ground or buried or cremated, right? Uh, and the soul flies away to heaven. We'll assume at this stage the person's a Christian, right? The soul flies away to heaven. Now, that's the usual theory, isn't it? So body goes one way and soul goes the other way. And, and you see this in the movies and so on, right? You know, a person on the hospital bed trying to be revived and the soul, you know, floats up. And this is, you know, outer body experience. You look down on yourself on the hospital bed. You know, is it, is it going to be like that? If we have this, this soul that somehow leaves the body. Now, this is, that's, the, that's the camp I used to be in, okay? But a lot of this depends on the view you have of what a person is, what a human person is. Uh, and the problem, I think, with having the view that the soul flies away from the body is that you end up driving a wedge between body and soul. And, and really, you end up treating them like two different things that can be just torn apart. Or, um, or, or ripped apart from one another. And I'm not sure that that is how the Bible really describes what a person is. And the other problem with the view that the soul flies away from the body and goes to heaven is that we end up basically concluding that the really important part of us is what? The soul. And the body, well, you know, it goes into the ground, it's buried, cremated, so it's not really that important. The, the, the whole object of life ends up being to flee the body to get out of this body, right? As soon as I can give this up, that goes into the ground. And my soul, the real me, the real I, gets to escape. Now, that really, I know it's a very popular view, and I'm sorry, there will probably be a few sacred cows destroyed this morning, but that view really owes more to Greek mythology than it does to the Bible. Greek mythology is all about the sharp dualism between body and soul. The body can do one thing, but the soul can do the other. And the really important part of us is the soul, the immaterial, the non-physical part of us. Uh, that, I don't think, is, is how the Bible sees the human person. It really comes back to how you see a person. What is a person? 
And there's three views on this. See what camp you're in. The first view is called the dichotomous view. This is the view that a person is basically two things, body and soul. Is that what you think? Some people might be. Uh, Body and soul. So it's the physical part of me, and then there's this spiritual part of me. And you can basically draw a line between them, and they could go two different ways after death. Then there's the second view, which is the trichotomous view, that a human being is body, soul, and spirit. Some people like to throw in spirit there. Um, which ends up meaning you kind of d- distinguish between soul and spirit, and people do that different ways. So then some people say we're, we're like a, a kind of a trinity, you know, we're body, soul, spirit. I think my, my personal view, and others disagree, is that neither of those views quite captures how the Bible talks about a human person. The Bible really addresses us as integrated wholes, so that body and soul are interconnected dimensions of one organic unity. Okay? In the Bible, you rarely ever, the word soul or suke <clears throat> rarely ever appears without the body. A soul is always embodied. You don't have this little immaterial spiritual part of you doing different things without the body. A soul, a person is an embodied soul, or, 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 or you could say a soulified body. Right? Body and soul, think of it this way. Jesus was both fully human and fully divine, right? He, was, he had a divine, somehow he was divine, somehow he was human. Now, don't, you don't want to think about those as two completely separate natures that somehow coexisted in this person. Rather, they were two dimensions of the same organic whole. He was divine, he was human, but they, they were a unity. They, they merged and morphed together into one person. This is how it is with body and soul. They're not two different things you can suddenly tear apart, either in this life or the next. To be a person is to be embodied, is to be an embodied soul. So here's what I would argue, and this might be a little controversial for some of you, but when a person dies, the the physical corpse is buried or cremated, decomposes, but the embodied person, not just the soul, is relocated to heaven or Hades. Does that make sense? So what I'm saying is, it's not just that your soul flies away. Now, obviously, your physical body goes into the ground. That doesn't come with you. But neither does the soul just exist in some immaterial form in heaven, just as some free spirit flying around on the clouds. The soul is always, always, always embodied. Just as in heaven right now, Jesus has a body. He didn't leave it behind when he was resurrected. He has a body. He has eyes, ears, mouth, saliva glands, kneecaps. He has a body in heaven right now. It's different to think about, isn't it? We're kind of challenging some assumptions here, I know. But heaven does not mean that it's this immaterial place that there's no possible way for physicality or body to survive. I think in heaven we'll be embodied. Now, that, as I say, I've changed my view on that. I used to be in the traditional camp. But as I've looked at the biblical evidence for it, I think that a person is an embodied person. So don't think just about a soul flittering away after death, but think of this, the, the whole embodied person being relocated. Okay, we're tracking so far? All right? You're not agreeing, but you're tracking? Yeah. Okay, all right, we can agree to disagree on that. It's all right. I can feel the arguments coming back the other way. That's, that's okay. That's about dialogue, right? So now let's move on to the next part. Where does this embodied person go? Every person at death is relocated, and there's only two options, heaven or Hades. Okay. Now, let's, let's deal with the positive one first, heaven. Well, heaven is not a future 
reality that's only going to be in effect one day, this thing that God's storing up, but it's not here now. Heaven is a present reality. Okay, It's here right now. This is why Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven. It exists. It's, it's among us. And heaven, the realm itself, heaven is, the best way to think of it is God's space. It's the realm where the triune God resides, Father, Son, Spirit. It's the realm where Jesus came from when he came to earth, from heaven to earth. It's the realm that God sends the Holy Spirit from. It's the realm where the angels reside with God coming and going from earth. Don't think of it as up there somewhere, right? Think of it as just a parallel realm, separated from the physical realm just by the thinnest of veneers. And there is, through the scriptures, through the biblical story, constant interplay between heaven and earth. People coming and going. Uh, God moving into the earthly realm to act and to speak and to create. Uh, but God exists in heaven. That is his space. Now, when a person dies who is a follower of Jesus, who's a Christ follower, they are, as an embodied person, immediately relocated to heaven. Don't think of them flying away somewhere on a little trip, you know, orbiting the earth a few times and then maybe taking off after that. No, they're relocated. Heaven is a present reality. And here's the other thing. Heaven is a conscious experience. Because <clears throat> some people say... You might have heard this view. There's a view out there called soul sleeping. Have you heard of this? And uh, the idea is that when you die, you go to sleep. Your soul sleeps until such a time as Jesus returns and then you wake up with everybody else. And oh, wonderful. It's, it's the resurrection day. The problem with that view is that it really is based on a misunderstanding of an expression in Scripture. Um, in the New Testament, sometimes the writers will talk about so-and-so fell asleep or so-and-so has fallen asleep. That is a euphemism for passing away, which is a euphemism for death, right? So when, when the biblical writers talk about such and such has fallen asleep, uh, it's often used as a figurative expression, which just means they've died. It doesn't mean they've gone into some state of soul sleeping and they're going to be woken up finally on the resurrection day. No, it means they've died and they've gone to be with Jesus. That's what that means, right? So it, it, it's a bit of a misunderstanding to try and build a whole doctrine on that phrase, trying to take it literally when it's actually a figurative expression. Today we'd say such and such passed away, or maybe more crassly, they've kicked the bucket. You know, it's the same sort of deal. I mean, really, that's the New Testament equivalent. They've fallen asleep. That's, what they, that's how they use the phrase. That's how Paul uses the phrase. It was just it had currency in the Greek world of his day. That's how he uses it. So you've got to use that in the sense that it was intended. So this is not to support um, the idea that a soul goes to sleep. And the other thing here is that there are, there are passages that really talk about our existence after death as a conscious awareness of the presence of Jesus. Paul says, if I'm absent with the body, I'm present with the Lord. And, and he says, it's better for me to depart this life and to be with Christ, which is better by far. Now, these verses capture the sense not of someone who's just sleeping or resting or somehow unconscious in heaven, but of someone who is consciously in and enjoying the presence of Jesus in an alive state. Christ followers who have died are right now consciously in the presence of Jesus. They are alive before him. They are embodied before him. They are aware, they are living, they are more alive now than they've ever been. So don't think of people just sort of being asleep like a big resting place until the final time Jesus appears. But think of heaven as a very alive, very dynamic, very social place, a time of resting, a time of renewal, and a time of anticipation of what is finally going to happen at the end of history. And we'll get to that in a little while. So can people in heaven see us? Are they aware of us? I think they can. But remember, people in heaven are in a different time 
experience. They're not living the succession of moments anymore as you and I are. So they'd be conscious of time, past, present, future. So loved ones who you know who have died who are in heaven, they're conscious of earthly existence, but as a whole, as a totality, they can see the beginning from the end now. They, they understand where things are going. They can see the future. They don't just see you in this isolated moment, but they're aware now, and, and they can see what's happening here in the context of what is to come. And they see the whole past, present, future, just as God sees time, because they're no longer bound by this earthly time sphere. So that's the realm of, of heaven. This is the place where Christ followers go when they die. Are we tracking with that? Now, the flip side of that coin, and the part that none of us love to talk about, is the idea of Hades. This is the realm where people who have rejected Christ go when they die. I know this is nobody's favorite sermon, including mine, right? So we're not going to spend long on it, but it is the reality the Bible holds out. This is, that's the name of the place, Hades, not hell, Hades. It is a realm, the best glimpse we get of this is Luke 16. It's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, the rich man dies and he goes to this realm called Hades. Lazarus dies, he is taken to this realm which is called Abraham's side. He's in the presence and the fellowship of Abraham. Now the story is highly symbolic. You, can't, you don't want to read everything in that story literally. For example, um, the rich man and Lazarus talk to each other between heaven and Hades. Well, clearly that's not going to happen. Right? So there's this ongoing conversation. Um, so be aware of the imagery that's being used. But still, the basic point is there. And, and the sad and the tragic reality is that Hades is pictured as a place of isolation. It's pictured as a place of torment. It is a place devoid of the, of the presence of God. It's a place that is separated from God. It's not a place of second chances. This is not purgatory. And this is why the scriptures don't support that doctrine, because you don't see people that are in Hades having some sort of second chance to choose Jesus. Finally, in the end, I'm going to have one more shot at it. No, basically, your eternal destiny is settled in this life. This is why the rich man gets to Hades and he says, please, Father Abraham, let me go back and tell, tell my brothers the truth. And Abraham says, listen, if they haven't believed, they're not going to believe with you even coming back. And he disallows it. This is the idea. You don't get to go back. You don't get to warn other people. You don't get to change your own decision. Hades, it's a done deal. By the time you get to heaven or Hades, your eternity is settled. So you have these two realms, heaven and Hades. And here's the key thing. <coughs> Excuse me. Both of these realms are temporary states. Okay? Both heaven and Hades. Both temporary. This is important, especially in regard to heaven, because most of the time when Christians talk about heaven, they talk about it like it's the final goal. Like the final deal is to get to heaven. And that's not the final deal. Heaven's important, but it's not the end of the world. Literally, right? It's, it, it's a temporary state. Heaven and Hades, are they're like transit lounges, okay, en route to your final destination. Now, heaven and Hades will continue until a decisive moment in history happens. And that moment will be the return of Jesus. This is the cataclysmic event that will bring history as we know it to a close and usher in uh, an entirely new era. Now, the return of Jesus is a controversial subject. For one main reason. There is a particular view about how this is going to go down when Jesus returns, okay? It's called the rapture. And you may be familiar with it. Basically, the theory is this. If you've, if you've read the Left Behind series, you'll be very familiar with this. Uh, there's, so we're, we're all going to be going about our business one day, and then suddenly, boom, all the Christians disappear. You've, you've heard this theory, right? Maybe you'll be on a plane. Maybe you'll be on a 
car, maybe you'll be asleep, bang, you disappear. All our wristwatches fall to the ground, right? Our clothing in a heap, and we're gone. Poof, to heaven, to be with Jesus. That's the theory of the rapture, right? Now, a lot of people hold that theory. Now, a couple of things we need to deal with when we get into all of this, because this is, you know, there's a lot of speculation, shall we say. I don't want to say fantasy, but there is a lot of speculation about this. If you have a Bible, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, this is the key passage that deals with this issue. There is one solitary word in the entire Bible that this doctrine is built on, and it's in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. Let's uh, read out all these verses so that we get the flavor as soon as I get there. All right, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up. That's that word. Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now that, admittedly, on first reading, gives you the impression that when Jesus appears, we're all going to be, up we go, teleported up into the clouds to be with Jesus somehow in the air. The word, the Greek word behind caught up is the word hapadzo. Okay? Only time this word appears in the whole Bible, which in itself is interesting, is here. Hapadzo. Now the word customarily outside the Bible means this. It is a word that's used in the context of when an emperor or a king is coming to town. When an emperor would come and visit a particular village or a city, the citizens of that village would come out to meet the emperor. That's the, that's the idea of hapadzo. They would, they would come out. They would hapadzo from the village. They would come out to meet the emperor, and they would meet him outside the village in order to escort him back into the village. That's the whole metaphor that's going on here that Paul is drawing on, Okay. So Paul is not using the word hapadzo in order to give us a literal chronological description of exactly what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. The whole idea of this metaphor for Paul is he wants you to know that when Jesus appears, it's going to be like a royal appearing. It is going to be the appearing of the greatest dignitary that you can possibly imagine, the appearing of the king of kings who puts all other kings to shame. And he uses this word hapadzo because it picks up that royal imagery and it describes the arrival of a great dignitary, a royal king whose presence has been long anticipated. That's the flavor Paul wants you to get. It's figurative language. His, his intention is not to lay out the exact woodenly literal. That would be misunderstanding Paul's figurative expression. And even if, even if you want to press the symbolism here and say, well, hang, maybe he is giving us a, a more details, Bear in mind that with, with Harpazo, the citizens of a village come out of their town to meet the emperor so that they can do what? Bring him back to their village. Harpazo isn't about the citizens of the village coming out to meet the emperor so that he can whisk them off to his castle. Harpazo is about the citizens coming out, meet the emperor, and escorting him back to their inhabitants. Does this make sense? So you start to see that this idea of Christians just being whisked away to heaven when Jesus returns, to be with him there forever, runs against the whole currency of the metaphor that Paul's using. Harpazo never implies that. Harpazo, even if you push the imagery, is always about us ending up here with Jesus here with us. 
It's not about Jesus whisking us off to be where he is. It's about him coming, us welcoming him back to be here with us on earth. That's the idea, do you see? So there are many people that support this idea of of a secret, sudden rapture where we're all going to be whisked up to heaven. I'm not one of them. I don't uh, buy into rapture theology. I don't think it's supported uh, from the scriptures when you start to look at the language that's being used. Here's another passage which is often used to substantiate this. Matthew 24. And this is the popular imagery. uh, Matthew 24, 37. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be left in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Now people read that and they think, good grief. Someone's going to be, I'm going to be taken or someone else is going to be taken and the other person's. This is where the whole left behind thing comes from, right? Is people think, well, two, you know the song, Two Men Walking Up a Hill, da-da-da, you know. Larry Norman, any Larry Norman fans? No. Hey, good on you, Murray. See, that's the song. I wish we'd all been ready. Because in, the, in a flash, suddenly, poof, someone's going to be gone and I'll be walking along with no friend. Now, in this passage, the whole backdrop to what Jesus is saying here is Noah's flood. Right? You see all this language about Noah in the days of Noah. It's going to be just like that. Now think about the flood. When the flood, when Noah's flood came, who were the ones who were swept away? Who were the ones who were taken away? The wicked. Not the righteous. He says exactly that. Until the flood came and took them all away. Who's them? Not Noah and his family. This is the wicked people that are being taken away to judgment. Being taken away here is not a metaphor of deliverance. It's a metaphor of judgment. The ones who are taken away are the ones who are judged. So based on that, do you want to be taken away or left behind? You want to be left behind. I've been thinking of writing a response to the Left Behind series called Why I Want to Be Left Behind. (laughs) Seriously. I mean, if it comes down to that, I want to be left behind because being taken away is being taken away to judgment. You see, people, the only way you arrive at the sort of rapture theory is by flipping the imagery around. And we've got to come back and be careful students of the scriptures here. Understand what Jesus was actually talking about. Understand what Paul was actually talking about. And I would argue, and again, people disagree in that there are good godly Christians on both sides of this debate, and that's fine. If you hold strongly to the view of the rapture, that's that's okay, no problem. You're not suddenly a heathen because you hold to that view. But I would argue that the the scriptures don't strongly support the idea that suddenly Christians are going to be whisked from the earth when Jesus comes. Rather, the word that's most commonly used for Jesus coming back is parousia, coming or appearing. It is simply that. It is simply that there will come a day without any warning or announcement when Jesus will be on earth physically present to us as he's present now in spirit. He will appear. It's not that he will necessarily descend floating down from the clouds. It's not that he's suddenly going to be on global television, so that everyone's going to see him simultaneously. It's not that he's going to do a few laps around the world first. He's just going to be here. And you say, well, how will I know that he's here then? You'll know. You'll know, because the Bible is clear that when he comes, there's no mistaking it. He's not going to be coming as a Jewish carpenter anymore. He's going to be coming as Jesus the warrior, Jesus the judge, Jesus the one coming to redeem and to reclaim his people, and you'll know it. There's going to be no mistaking. So don't worry, oh, you know, is it this guy? Maybe it's her, maybe it's him. No, no, no. When Jesus comes, you'll know. But don't expect someone coming down on a trapeze from the heavens. 
Don't expect to be snatched up to heaven to be with Jesus. Just expect that one day Jesus is going to appear. He will be here, just as he's here right now by his Spirit. Okay? Right, now some of you have stopped carrying pictures of me around in your wallet already. <clears throat> so now we're just going to keep going, right? Now that I've lost enough friends, we're just going to plow on. We've got a bit more time, so let's keep going. So we've looked at what happens after death. We looked at the, uh, the idea of heaven, embodied heaven, I would argue. Um, then heaven and Hades continue until the day Jesus returns. And then when Jesus returns, this triggers the final great event, which is the last judgment. The final judgment. Now, this is pretty scary stuff. As soon as you say the word judgment, people get a bit shaky. You know, we're worried, aren't we? Am I going to survive this? What's the story? How does it all work? Well, the first thing to say about the final judgment is that it is good news. The final judgment is good news, ultimately, because it is the vanquishing of evil. It is bringing justice where there was injustice. It is putting wrongs to right. It is the victory of God over sin, death, and Satan. And it is the final renewal and recreation of all things. The judgment is good news. The judgment is primarily about the vindication of God's justice. Let me say that again. The final judgment, its primary purpose, is not about you and me. It is about the vindication of God and his justice. Because we look around in this life and we wonder, don't we? Is God really good? Has he really got this thing figured out? Does he really know what he's doing? We have to reserve our final call on that until we see the day when God finally acts to sort things out. It will be the vindication of God. It will be the vindication of all that God has ever done. And it will prove him to be just and good and right and fair. Now, the clearest picture that we get of the judgment and how this is going to work is in Revelation 20. Turn over there. You're going to love it. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. That's Jesus, by the way, the one seated on the throne. I can show you that from other passages, but... The judgment, you and I will be judged by Jesus. God has delegated his judging authority to Jesus. The Son will judge all things. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. Now, here's a critical distinction. Did you notice here there are two types of books? Okay, first we've got Books, just books, that's, what, that's all they're called. Standing before the throne and books were opened. Okay, so on one hand you've got books. Then another book is opened, which is the book of life. Okay, two separate categories. First, a whole lot of books, and then quite independently, the book of life. Now, keep that in your mind. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. So these books, what you've got here is a record of all the deeds of every individual person who has ever lived, past, present, future. Every thought you've thought, every word you've said, every action, every pattern of thinking, behavior, everything you've done. Guess what? We don't get to avoid this judgment. People think, oh, I'm a Christian, though. Surely I get a little side door, I go around the other side and go straight to something else. No, no, you'll be there and you will be judged. I'll be judged. And here's the uncomfortable reality. You and I are going to face a judgment that is on the basis of works. doesn't matter if you're a Christian. doesn't matter if you're a non-Christian. doesn't matter what particular religion you may or may not subscribe to. You and I one day will stand before God and we will be judged on the basis of our deeds. Not our faith in Christ. Not whether you came to church. 
on the basis of your works, your deeds. Okay, now that's not very comfortable, is it? So hang on a minute, I thought I was saved by grace. I'm justified by grace. I'm not going to be judged by works. And yet the Bible is pretty clear that you will. Let me just to, just to hammer this home, uh, read you 2 Corinthians 5.10. It makes this plain as day. Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive what is due them, whether for things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Paul doesn't say we must all appear before the judgment so that if you're saved by grace, you're going to be great. He says we must all appear before the judgment so we may receive what is due us for the things we've done. He's talking to Christians. Here's the first thing we need to realize about the judgment. It's going to be on the basis of our deeds. Now, how are you feeling about that so far? How do you rate your chances? Yeah, yeah, I'm about the same. Not feeling particularly good about that. But this is important. We, we will stand and we will have a face-to-face interaction with God on the day of judgment about our lives. They're going to be laid bare, uncovered, laid bare, every thought, every word, every deed, post-Christian, pre-Christian, whatever. It's all out. And I don't know about you, but I don't think that's going to go particularly well for me, really, because I'm not, there's a lot of stuff in my life I'm not proud of. There's a lot of stuff in my life that I don't particularly want God to bring up as he opens the books of deeds, starts scrolling through and looks up and raises his eyebrows at me. That's not a comfortable reality, but it's going to happen. And what that will mean is that I, on that day, am going to hear one word, guilty. I will hear that word pronounced over me by Jesus, the righteous judged. Right? Guilty. Some Christians say, I'm not going to be judged guilty. Yeah, you will. Next person in line after me, I don't know who it's going to be, but I guarantee you they're going to hear the same thing. Guilty. Not just automatically, the books will be opened and the deeds will be read out. And God will get to the end of that process with that person and he'll say, guilty. And then the next person and the next person. One after one, there will be a procession of every man and woman who has ever lived and every person will have their deeds exposed and every person, because none of us have lived up to God's expectations, all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory and every one of us will hear us, hear God, Jesus say, guilty. This is the reality of the final judgment that we need to soak up. Now, there is a little bit of good news coming, just in case you're about to leave the church and walk out and never come back. Um, that won't help you either, by the way, on the day of judgment. Um, <laughs> you might as well stay now. You know. So, so everyone's going to hear that verdict, right? Guilty. And then look at the very last verse in this passage, verse 15. All those whose names were not found written in the book of life were thrown into the lake of fire. Now, here's the logic of this. There's a procession of humanity, and every single person is pronounced guilty. And then what happens is this. God then takes the other book, the book of life, and he opens it up. This is not a book of deeds. That's why there's no plural. It's just a book. And all it has in it is a list of names. And it is the list of names of those people who are identified with Jesus Christ, who have trusted them for their salvation, who have placed their faith in him, and who have leaned on his sacrifice his punishment on their behalf. So having been pronounced guilty, God then opens the book of life and he says, is your name here? And he scrolls down to M-U-N, Mun. And hopefully, and I know for sure it is, there's no hopefully about it, my name is in the book of life. And what the logic of this means is that someone else has paid my sentence for me. It's not that I'm not guilty, I am. 
but it's that Jesus has paid my sentence. Now, the, the other scenario is that someone rocks up, they are pronounced guilty, and, and Jesus opens the book of life and their name is not, not there. What does that mean? Their sentence has not yet been paid. So who's going to pay it? They are. That, that, there's really just two choices. We're all guilty, so someone's got to pay the sentence of death. Either it's you or it's Jesus. Those of us who have said, you know, I, I, I'm choosing Jesus. Why would I not? I'm clinging to the cross. Jesus has paid my sentence. My name's in the book of life. When I get to that place on the day of judgment, God says, okay, fantastic. Jesus has paid your sentence. So for those who are united with Jesus, it's not that we hear not guilty. It's that we hear no sentence. No sentence for you. You can go free. Do you see how this works? The logic of judgment. For those people whose names are not in the book of life, the sentence has to be paid. And this is what will then lead to the fi- what we call the eternal state. Heaven and, ha- uh, heaven and Hades are no more, but the final two states that are then ushered in are on the one hand what we call the new creation or the resurrection, and on the other hand, hell. That's what hell is, right? Hell is not a present reality. It is the state which will be the eternal destiny of those who have rejected Jesus. So hell, or Jesus describes it as Gehenna, will be the realm that is inhabited by those who have rejected Jesus in this life. Now some people argue that all that happens is if you're found, uh, your name is not in the book of life, then you are at that moment just annihilated. You cease to exist. So there's not eternal punishment, it's just that you... You just, you're vaporized. You know. In reality, I won't go through all the scriptures with you, but that doesn't do justice to the biblical pictures of punishment and destruction. I know this is not nice to talk about, but the Bible is reasonably clear that the, the eternal state for those who have persistently rejected the offer of Jesus saving love in this life is not just annihilation. It is a continual eternal torment. It's continual punishment. Is that because God's vindictive? No, it's because God's holy. Is it because God's mean and he's a bully? No, it's because God is pure and perfect and cannot tolerate sin. Sin needs to be judged and sin needs to be sentenced. What God has done is being endlessly merciful and providing a remedy for all those who had run to the cross. The, 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 the door is wide open right now. But for those who in this life say, no, 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 not interested, not interested, not interested, they are basically consigning themselves to that eternal fate. God doesn't consign anybody to hell. He simply delivers the verdict that someone's already chosen in this life. Now, the good news, of course, is that for those who are united with Jesus, the result of the final judgment is completely different. That we are ushered in to a new creation, not floating on clouds somewhere, not a little spaceship up in the sky, right? Not Jack and the Beanstalk stuff, right here on earth. Now, some people say that earth gets destroyed and God builds a new one. Personally, I believe that it's this earth just transformed and renewed and resurrected. Just as we are resurrected, the earth is resurrected. But we can argue the toss on that. The point is that it's a new earth. It's a physical earth. God will redeem not only you, he's going to redeem time and space and matter. All of those are going to be part of the new creation. It'll be on earth. I think the best idea of what things will be like and what your resurrection body will be like on earth is to look at Jesus post-resurrection. Look at his resurrection body, look at the things he could and couldn't do, and that'll give you probably the best cue 
of what things will be like for us when we're finally resurrected. Because after all, his resurrection body was the first fruits of ours. One day our body will be transformed to become like his glorious body. It will be a body though. You're not going to be a disembodied spirit floating up there. You'll have a body. And it will have parts of continuity with your present body. Right? It'll be like a seed sown in the ground from which a fruit tree springs up. Now, it's going to be a better body, it's going to be perfected, but there'll be continuity between your current body and your eternal body. So look after your body. Right? Don't devalue the body. That, that's Greek mythology. That's Plato. Don't degrade the body. The body is essential. It is good. It is created by God, and you're going to have it in the new creation. So look after your body. We will receive resurrection bodies, and we will live on this earth together with the triune God forever and ever and ever. And that is the glorious destiny of all those who trust Jesus in this life. Now, you can know with certainty whether that's you or not. This might sound like it's all up for grabs, especially that judgment piece that some of you are like, gee, I really am not sure about that. The reality is this. You will know in this life for sure what the result of that final judgment is going to be for you. Whether you've trusted in Jesus Christ for the sin in your life, whether you've placed your faith in him, whether you've clung to the cross and said, I can't do this, I'm not going to make it at the final judgment. Jesus, I'm in your hands. I trust you. You've paid my sentence. Please make it real in my life. If you've begun that relationship with him, if you've placed your faith in him, you know right now with certainty that on that day you're going to hear no sentence for you. Yes, you're guilty, but there'll be no sentence for you. You know for sure. Not a question mark, not a vague hope, not a vague whim. We've got to be clear on this as Christians. We can't go through our life, gee, I wonder if, I wonder if. No, no, no. You, God says you can know. He who the sun sets free is free indeed. Right? 100%. Amen. You can stand on it. It's a promise of the scriptures. And of course, the other clue will be whether you end up at the end of this life in heaven or Hades. That's going to give you a pretty fair clue, right? You end up in Hades? Hmm. Didn't go so well, right? Yeah, I thought I was going to make it. No, clearly not. And there's not, God doesn't make mistakes with this stuff. All right? If you in this life have trusted Jesus, you will at the end of this life find yourself in heaven. And then you will, you will know just as you know now that on the day of judgment, you'll be pronounced guilty but no sentence. And you will then enjoy the blessing of the new creation. John Stott put it this way. Our eternal destiny is settled in life, sealed at death, and stated on the day of judgment. That's how it works. It's not that on the day of judgment God flips a coin. Gee, let's have a think about this. You know, got any leverage? Got any bargaining chips? No, none of that. It's man. By then, it's just a statement of fact. It's all settled in this life. It's settled now in the present by what you do with Jesus. Because when the lights go out and when your time on this earth ends, that's it. No second chances. No optional extras in heaven. It is settled right here and right now. And the certainty and the confidence that gives you is that you can trust Jesus today and know where you are going to spend eternity, in heaven, getting through the judgment, and then in the final new creation. Amen? It's good news, right? And we live with anticipation of that incredible day. That's heaven in a nutshell. Happy? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for heaven. We thank you for the hope of heaven, and we thank you, though, Lord, that it is not the final chapter. We thank you the greatest is yet to come. The greatest is the resurrection. The greatest is the new creation, and we look forward to that. We look forward to the day when heaven will transition into this new heaven and new earth and we'll reign with you here on this earth. Father, our hearts beat for that. And I pray for every person here, Lord, that does not know you yet. I pray that this would not be scary or threatening or hellfire and brimstone, but would simply be a rich incentive and motivation to trust you for their salvation today. I pray, Lord, they'd run into your arms. 
They'd see no more reason. The barriers would be taken away, Father, and they would simply fall on their knees today and say, there's no other choice for me but to trust Jesus, to be the sacrifice and to be the one who has paid the sentence in my place so that my name will be written in the book of life. Thank you, Lord, that we have the assurance you're not a God who plays games. You're not a God who tricks us. You've made your plan clear. And while there is a lot we don't know, we know the pathway, we know the key events, we know how things will basically work. You've given us enough to have the certainty and the confidence in this life of where we will be one day. Thank you, God, that you've got to listen control. Thank you that you know exactly what we're doing. And we just say with the Apostle John, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, hasten the day of your return. We pray you'd come back, Lord. Join us back here on this earth. We look forward to it. I pray that would pull us forward every moment of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.